don't believe in God, I don't believe in heaven or in hell or something like that. For me, there, there is no God. There is no God, so there's nothing to believe. Uh, kind of God, but not this God as Christ, Christian. Founded by Jeff and Barb Sirio, the European Initiative exists to bring revival to the churches and evangelism to the streets of Berlin, Germany, and emanating from there to the rest of Germany and surrounding nations. And it is my honor and privilege to present to you again a mighty man of God, Jeff Sirio, the founder of European Initiative. Thank you. My wife sends her greetings. I think we're going to see a, another video in a second, so you'll see a shot of my beautiful Barb. She suffered an injury recently. We could not travel on this trip. But we love Generations Church. We've known Alan and Yvette Latta um, when we both had a lot more hair in, uh, uh, 27 years ago. And we're both now in the Grandparent Club in the past year. Uh, I kind of look grandfatherly here with this sweater and so forth. But as I preach to you today, you're going to find out I'm not your typical grandfather. Um, so I have a message I want to bring to you, and um, uh, let's pray. Then we're going to watch another video. Hi, Yvette. So glad you're here. She inspires me. Uh, let's pray. Lord, uh, this is serious stuff. This is your kingdom. We are your people, and we love you, and we want to glorify you with our lives. And uh, Lord, I just pray that today, this next 40 minutes or so, would be just a, a time where, where you, Jesus, are glorified here in, here in the lives of your sons and daughters in Granbury. Give us ears to hear, Holy Spirit, what you want to say to the church today. Give me especially ears to hear. And I ask for your anointing that I would not just preach out of my mind, but out of your spirit that dwells in me. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Okay. Guys, are we going to be able to play this video? We're going to show you. Stop. Pause it for a sec. Uh, I want to see yourselves in this video. What Alan said is, is our mission is not to plant churches. Our mission is to make the church in Europe stronger. Because the church in Europe, believe it or not, is tiny. It is on life support. In the city in which I live, Berlin, Germany, 
a report came out uh, about a year or so ago, oddly enough, from the University of Chicago, great institution in our land that does, uh, it's famous for its, its research on, on religion and spirituality worldwide. And they said in former East Germany, which is where we live, it's the most atheistic region in the world. And, and Europe, my brothers and sisters, is dying spiritually. Did you see that quote in the video? When the New York Times, the leftist, the liberal New York Times, gives us a wake-up call spiritually, we should take note. It said this in 2006. Contemporary Europe is the most godless civilization the world has ever known. And, and that's where I live. I'm immersed in Sodom and Gomorrah. But Jesus, the blood of Christ, is strong. And the blood of Christ still drips down to Europe. And he wants to see these precious people know him. So we've mobilized the church. Some of you from the church have been to Romania with us. Some of you, Steve here, has been on the streets of Berlin. Alan and his wife have been to Berlin and Romania uh, doing EI-related things. So I want you to visualize. And Yvette, I want this to sink into your heart that some mighty youth from Generations Church can be doing what you see in this video. Go ahead. Jeff Sirio, the director of the European Initiative, and this is my wife, Barb. And we're here today in Berlin, Germany, at Alexander Platz. We're here with Karis Bible College, a fantastic team that is witnessing, sharing the gospel with Jesus Christ, praying for people, and changing Berlin. And many lives have been touched. Many people have given their lives to Jesus Christ. Thank you, Karis. Thank you. fantastic time of outreach. We've seen crowds of hundreds interested in the drama and the skit and the dance and the worship. And it's been so awesome to see Karis Bible College engage, be a catalyst to reach out to this city. So many lost, so many needy people here in Berlin. And right now we are impacting, we are reaching them right where they're at.
bad, so unmotivated. And now something has changed. When I go to work, I um, feel very happy. Praise God. Francesca had more Muslim friends. She didn't know a single Christian. She had a mother. She never knew her father. She had never, ever been in a church. She had never, ever opened or heard the Bible. In her school in Berlin, there were more, much more Muslims than believing Christians. She knew more about Islam than Christianity. And she's a, a native German. And she just happened to be walking through a square on her way to her job. And she saw some weird Americans dancing. We kind of create a flash mob type scene. And the next thing she knows, she's seeing a drama. The gray t-shirts had graffiti art, famous graffiti art from the Berlin Wall. And we create, God gave us our ministry, the idea for a original drama. It's called Die Mauer, or the wall in English. And we create a human Berlin Wall. And then there are scenes where the lead girl goes through tragedies of life and abortion and, and drugs and other things. And before she knew it, Francesca and about three or 400 others, they're singing the gospel as Jesus breaks through the wall. And Jesus is actually crucified on the Berlin Wall. It's a metaphor. And then Jesus comes back to life and he rescues the girl. And then we, and maybe you, Generations Church, we immerse into the crowd. We go with German believers helping us with translation, but most of the people speak English anyway, and we share our story. You know, people can argue this or that about evolution, about creation, but you know what they can't argue, Pastor Allen? They can't argue with your personal testimony. They can't argue with you, Marietta, about what happened to your father. You know what I mean? They can't argue with you, Steve, as the Lord saved your life physically. So I'm delighted to be with you. As you can tell, I, uh, my engine revs pretty strong. Um, there's a ministry, I don't know where it started, I think Australia. I don't know really anything about it. But the name of the ministry is Planet Shakers. Anybody on board with me? Would you like to be a planet shaker? I love that name. And uh, that kind of ties into my message. Here's the title of my message. Why are we here? Why are we here? Not why are we here Sunday morning in Granbury at Generations Church. Not why am I sitting in this chair. But why are we as Christians? Why are we here on this earth? What is our purpose? I want you to turn to Mark chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 15 through 17. And this is a profound passage. Number, number one, it's profound because these are the first words of Jesus. It's repeated the same way in Matthew chapter 4. You know, I'm a missionary. We've lived in Budapest, Hungary. We've lived in Stuttgart, Germany. We've lived in Berlin, Germany. Missionary to Europe. But a lot of missionaries, they love to go and make their... Uh, their preaching text, Matthew 28, the last words of Jesus before 
He ascended to heaven. That's important, right? What he said in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples. But I want to look at the first words of Jesus. And you're going to see a great commission right here in Mark chapter 1. So he's going to talk about three subjects. Three important subjects. The kingdom, redemption, and discipleship. And you'll see it. So let me begin with verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And I could download that for a long time. But let me just say a few words. What a profound thing he just said. He's saying that all of history from Genesis 1, or let me even say from Genesis 0.0, all of history, all of creation, everything that has happened, picture a funnel with me right now. All of human history is poured into the top of that funnel. And now Jesus says we're at the bottom of the funnel. Now he says everything that has happened, it's as if he has entered a stage. Of course, he didn't. He's just in Galilee. But it's as if the curtain has been pulled back. And Jesus makes a profound pronouncement. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And, and I know we use that term, the kingdom. What is the kingdom? Of course, a kingdom must have a king, must have a domain, a, a sphere of dominion. But let me just put it in layman's terms. What he's saying is, to humanity then, to humanity today, what he's saying is, life has changed. God has entered this earth. And God's way of thinking, what God values, what it's a whole new life. He, life has just turned, the globe is just turned upside down. And then he says how we can enter this kingdom. And he says, repent and believe in the gospel. And um, I told you that the church is very small. In the city in which I live, pastors argue because Germans are very precise. That's why they make good BMWs. They argue, is our city 0.4% Christian or 0.5% Christian? That's a debate. Can you believe that? That's why I say I'm living in a continent that is teetering to survive spiritually. There are lots of statistics that say in the next 25 years, many European countries will have a Muslim majority. It is in a spiritual battle, like you saw in that video. But here's something interesting. The small fraction of those who are Christians, as I've met many, not only in Germany, but in Spain, in France, in Hungary, in Serbia, many of them say, here's how they describe when they became a Christian. We describe it, let me back up. Here's how Americans describe. I became a believer at VBS. I became a Christian at an altar call. I accepted the Lord when my parents told me. You ever think about it? I accepted, you know? Uh, kind of makes it look like we're some high and mighty. But here's how Europeans say it. I repented when I was 18. I like that. It zeroes in on the essence of following Jesus. We need to turn from ourselves. All we like sheep have turned astray. We've turned each one to our own way. We need to turn to the great shepherd. So he introduces the kingdom. 
He introduces salvation, redemption, by saying repent and believe in the gospel. And in verse 17, he introduces discipleship. And read with me. He says, follow me. That's the beginning of discipleship. And I will make you become fishers of men. So let's look at these first words. Follow me. Alan has walked with the Lord for a long time. So have I. And I love the simplicity of the gospel, don't you? It's follow me. When we talk to people at this God festival, when we talk to people in the strength on the streets of Berlin, there are a lot of mixed up thoughts about what is a Christian. There are a lot of mixed up thoughts here in Granbury, Texas, about what is a Christian. It's a relationship with the living God who loves us. It's a lifelong journey of walking with him. So he introduces the concept of follow me. And I love the simplicity of that. And then he says, follow me and I will make. That's part of discipleship, isn't it? Do you guys know that we are like lumps of clay? And, and as we follow him, as we walk with him, as we go where he goes, as we yield ourselves to let him pour his values, his heart into us, that is this process of I will make you. Aren't you glad he doesn't say you will make yourself? He says, follow me. And he says, I will make you. But what's interesting, just make a note, if you're writing notes, Matthew 28 says, go and make disciples. There comes a point of maturity. There comes a point at which we, we live the crib. And, and we allow him to make, form his heart in us. And then we step out and we make disciples, according to Matthew 28. So he says, follow me. And I will make you. You know what he's saying? He's saying, go with me into the villages. Go with me to where the prostitutes are. Go with me into the homes of the tax collectors. And, and see what I see. Smell what I smell. Go with me as I lay hands on the lepers. Go with me as I spit in the clay and put it on the eyes of the blind. He says, I want you to embrace who I embrace. I want you to value who I value. I want you to follow me. And then he says, I will make you become fishers of men. Wow. This is the first thing in his opening profound proclamation. That he talks about the kingdom. Now he's talking about discipleship. In the, in the, and he finishes the sentence. By saying, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I, I have this weird way of thinking. Maybe I'm, I'm dyslexic. But sometimes I read scriptures and I ask the Holy Spirit, why did you say that instead of something else? Sometimes I want to write the Bible for him. I'm just joking. Not really. But, you know, he could have said, follow me and I will make you intercessors. Follow me. And I will make you my bride, my worshipers. He could have said, follow me. And I will make you students of my word. Follow me, I'll make you servants. Follow me, I'll make you strong in character. But he didn't choose to finish that way. And all those things are important. All those things are essential to being a disciple. All those things make up who we are as his sons and daughters. But I've asked the Lord several times, why 
as you introduce the subject of discipleship, why did you finish that verse pointing towards others? Why did you say, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men? And, and here's the thought, and you might have better thoughts, but here's one thought. Our time on this earth is short. We will have eternity with him in heaven. In heaven, we will be in his presence worshiping. Sheikh is a great worship leader. Funny, too. But uh, as great as the worship is here, think what it's going to be before the throne of God. We're going to be worshiping him in his presence forever. We're going to be talking with him, hearing him. He is the word. The word became flesh. We're going to be with the word. We're going to be getting revelation like rainbows popping in our hearts. We're going to be so, you know, intercession is is like talking with him. It's it's being with him. It's hearing his voice. John 10. But we're going to be doing that forever in heaven. But the only thing that we're not going to be doing in heaven is have a chance to share Jesus with a lost soul. Because, Steve, by then it's too late. By then it's fixed. It's determined. And we'll see more about that in a minute. So. He says right here, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. This is the first thing he says about he's defining discipleship with these profound words. And we are all called to be fishers of men. Are you his disciple? Then he says, I will make you fishers of men. It's not just for a few weirdos. It's not for a member of generations that goes out handing out tracts. It's not something we do. I want you to get this. It's who we are. It's not notches on your belt. It's who we are. So he says, follow me. So my brothers and sisters, let's follow him and see where he goes. And let's go to Matthew chapter 9. And let's follow him. Matthew 9, verse 10. Okay, this is a passage I think all of us are pretty familiar with. And it happened that as he was reclining a table in the house, behold, many tax gatherers and sinners came and joined Jesus at his, and his disciples at the table. You see, his disciples were there. His disciples were following him. They were smelling what he smelled. They were tasting what he tasted. They were experiencing. It's all part of discipleship. He was forming his heart in these lumps of clay who represent us. So they are there with the sinners in verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with the tax gatherers and sinners? But Jesus overheard this and he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are ill. I'm just going to open my sweater here and bear my soul. Did you see those weirdos at that Gothic festival? There was a day as a, I used to be a businessman in Dallas-Fort Worth, then became a pastor at Shady Grove, like Pastor Zellin and Yvette. But there was a day as a suburban, conservative, homeschool, mother and father, that stuff repelled me. That stuff I judged. That stuff made me angry. And sometimes my brothers and sisters God's not finished working with these lumps of clay who are us. 
And he, by his grace, by his mercy, he has formed his compassion in me. I'm not repelled by their sin. I'm compelled by their need. I don't look at them and see headaches. I look at them and see heartaches. So Jesus says what we saw there. Those who said there is no God. Those who said there is no heaven or hell. Those who smile say, I don't believe in the Christian Bible. But you know what they're saying underneath? Give me a reason to believe. Tell me why I should believe. So Jesus says here, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are ill. The continent I live in is sick. But you know what? Granbury, Texas is sick. Some of your relatives are sick. They are ill. Some of your neighbors are sick. Some of your classmates in school have spiritual cancer. And you know what? I'm going to give you a new word for your own uh, identification as to who you are. You are sons and daughters. You are saints, but you are spiritual surgeons. You are fire men and women. Let me ask you a question. If you pulled up into your nice little uh, neighborhood in Granbury and your neighbor's house was literally physically on fire, would you jump out of your car and do anything? Would you maybe get, get on your cell phone? Would you maybe think of some water? Would you maybe risk your life in going to do something? Well, let me tell you something. Their homes are on fire. Their homes are on fire. And on the video, some of the gods said, there is no heaven or hell. I live with this. Do you believe that there is a heaven and hell? Do you believe that there is an end game coming? That there is a a wrath coming that is not going to end up so well for those who don't believe your neighbors are spiritually sick. They have a spiritual cancer and part of your calling as believers is to be a fisherman, but a spiritual surgeon to help them understand, to give them the serum, to give them the medicine. You know what the serum is for their sickness? It's John three sixteen. It's, there is, a, there is one who loves them more than any love they've experienced on this earth. And that love is so powerful, it can lift them up out of whatever oppression and bondage they're in. Look at the next verse. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. Praise Jesus he came for sinners. Count me as the chief among sinners. Aren't you grateful he came for sinners? But he is still coming for sinners. And how does he come to sinners? He comes through you. He comes through you and I. We've got to get out of our apathy. We've got to get out of our own fears, our own selfishness. And we need to be moved with his compassion. I am sorry. I'm preaching with emotion. But I felt impressed upon the Holy Spirit. And I submitted to Pastor Allen to awaken you as believers. And maybe some of you have this compassion that motivates you already. But if not, just just as I am preaching, be asking the Holy Spirit, Lord, help me, help me, change me.
I have read the New Testament many times. I've been a believer 30-some years. You've read the New Testament many times. I challenge you to find anywhere in the Gospels or the New Testament where Jesus Christ said these words, go and learn what this means. Many times he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. But never, except for right here, did he say, go and learn. So this is important. What he's saying to you is, ponder what I'm saying. What I'm saying is worthy of you going home and meditating and thinking about it and seeing if this is part of your life. And what he does not want is our traditions. He does not want our religious sacrifices. What he wants is he wants to make you. He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He wants his compassion to be formed in you, to be grafted in you. He wants you to hurt over what makes him hurt. He weeps over the lost. He weeps over the people in that video. He wants you to do the same. So he said, follow me. Let's follow him. We're going to go from the houses to the villages. Go to Matthew 9, 35 and 36. And Jesus was going about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast. In some translations, it says they were without hope, like sheep without a shepherd. My brothers and sisters, this is a very strong Greek word that is used here to say that he was moved with compassion. Some of you are reading the old King James or the new King James. Um, and um, uh, well, here in the in the New American Standard, it says he felt compassion. In the King James, it says he was moved with compassion, a slightly better translation. The word there that that those two words moved with compassion is is a Greek word that has to do with our kidneys, our intestines and and. The root meaning here, the application for us is that Jesus, when he saw the hopelessness, when he saw their depression, that they were downcast, that they were like sheep without a way. He hurt inside. That's why that word is used. His his, you know, kidneys. I mean, imagine having a kidney stone. He was aching inside physically because of what he saw spiritually. And he wants us to have the same compassion. Sometimes our compassion goes this far. We see somebody. We have a, a relative who might be a great guy. Maybe you have a relative who's a young father. He's a little league coach. He's not born again. But you don't really care because you are born again. And you know where you're going, but our compassion doesn't move us to action to our relative, the great guy who's a good dad and a, and a lowly coach, but he's not born again because we don't want to offend him. Because we don't want to fear, you know, getting rejected. Because we're too busy watching Sports Center or Downton Abbey, or whatever else, 
And there's nothing wrong with those shows. But I'm just saying, there has to be room in our lives for compassion. Because the end game for that relative of ours, who might be a great guy, or a great girl, or our neighbor, who we see pushing their, their little baby in the stroller, but we know that they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, the end game for that sweet mom with that little baby is hell. It is hell. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10 says, Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. Hebrews 2, verse 3 says, there is no, listen to these words, there is no escape for those who reject so great a salvation. Turn over with me to Luke 16. Luke 16, 19 through 31 is a long passage. We're not going to look at all of it, but it's the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus is in heaven. The rich man is in hell. Hell is a place of torment. Um, Lazarus is asking Father Abraham, who he can see. That's an interesting concept. He can see into heaven. Um, but he's asking if Lazarus can come, the poor man, and just tip, take the tip of his finger in water to relieve the pain of the fire. Okay, so now let's go to the end of verse, or verse 25. But Abraham said, child, remember, he's talking to the rich man in hell. Remember that during your life, you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed. If you have a Bible with you today that you are free to underline or circle things, I have some Bibles I don't do that, some that I do. But in this Bible I'm reading to you right now, I have that word circled. There's a great chasm that is fixed in order, the, in order that those who wish to come from over here to you may not be able Listen, are you hearing the words? It's fixed. You may not be able to go from here to there. And none may cross over from there to us. None may cross over from there to us. There is no second chance. I just read you or quoted Hebrews 2.3. There is no escape for those who reject such a great salvation. And then hear what he says. So he, he just heard, there's no chance. There's no escape. There's no chance for anybody to even put a drop of cold water on his lips. So here's what he says. He says, then I beg you. Do you think there's any emotion behind those words? The man in hell is saying, I beg you, Abraham, that you send him, Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may warn them unless they also come to this place of torment. Someday I'm going to preach a sermon called Living on September the 10th. But I'm going to give you a little snippet of it right now. Let's use our imagination. We all remember time machine shows when we were kids. It, it's, it's kind of a fascinating concept. It's not reality. But let me just pretend for a moment. Let's say that all of us in this room 
could be transported to New York City on September 10th. And here's the deal. We wouldn't have power to change what's about to happen. We don't even have the power to keep people from going in the World Trade Center that next day. But you could just share the gospel. You do have the power. So let me ask you a question. What would you do on September the 10th, 2001, in New York City? What would you do if you could go back and you're in New York City on that day? Would you take your time to go to the top of the Empire State Building, take some nice photos? Would you eat at Chinatown? Would you see a couple Broadway plays? By God's grace, you do none of that. You know what you would be doing and what I'd be doing? We would be with every ounce of our physical being and strength. We'd be running here and there. We'd be finding everybody who would be working in that World Trade Center. And we would get down on our knees and we would say, I beg you, I warn you, trouble is coming. Trouble is coming. Repent and receive the love of Jesus Christ. Do you know what? We are living on September the 10th. Trouble is coming. Trouble came to the Philippines in November last year. Turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. These are the words of Jesus. If you're reading a red-letter Bible, these words are in red. So Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. I was preaching that verse a few years ago in Poland, and my translator, a wonderful spirit-filled Christian, uh, I know Alan has preached before with translators. And the worst thing you want from a translator is the translator to correct you as you're preaching. And this actually happened. It's happened when I preached in Russia too. But I was quoting this verse. It was a gathering of unbelievers. We did street uh, dramas and stuff like you saw. And we promoted, we handed out flyers for an evening meeting. So we had about 150 unbelievers there. Some, I'm sure, were Catholic Polish people who had some religion, but they weren't born again, and many atheists. So I share this verse, and I said, this is speaking about God. These are the words of Jesus speaking about God the Father. He said, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. My translator said, no, Jeff, it's talking about Satan. And I said, she, she got mixed up. I mean, she... She just couldn't believe she had never read this verse. She couldn't believe the truth of this verse. That Jesus says of God the Father, fear him who can destroy soul and body in hell. I know this is hard for some of you to digest. You know, God is love, but God is just. And he gave something very precious to the world. He gave his son. And his son was ravaged. Beyond the point of recognition, Easter's coming up in a few months and we'll have wonderful messages here at Generations Church and all over the world 
about the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. But that blood still cries out. That blood still cries out. That blood still saves. And there's nothing else that saves. I want to give you three um, philosophies, three kinds of theology. And you tell me where you fit in on this. Number one, I'll be like Monty Hall, if you remember that old game show. Door number one, there is no God. God is no more real than Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy. We are products of evolution. The only reality is the physical world. What we see, what we touch. There's nothing else. Everyone in this world is free to determine their own standards of right and wrong. We should all be tolerant of each other. There's no heaven. There's no hell. There's no afterlife. Religion is for the weak. Any of you in that camp? Didn't think so. Okay. Number two. I call number two Luby's Cafeteria Theology. You'll, you'll, you'll get it in a second. There is a power that made the universe. Some call that power God. Some call him Allah. Some have other names. All religions are equal. All religions have some of the truth, but no religion has all of the truth. Jesus might have lived. If so, he was a good teacher. If there is an afterlife, we will all go there, except maybe for the really bad ones like Hitler. See, the reason I call this Luby's is it's kind of the prevailing worldview right now. At Luby's, Steve, you might like meatloaf. Your wife might like veggies. Greg might like fish. And, but, and so it's kind of that way with world religions. For, for you, Islam might be best. Buddhism or New Age or Scientology might be your cup of tea. And it's okay if, if mine is Christianity, but it's not for me. We need to be tolerant of each other. All roads lead to God. Okay, that's number two. Any of you there? Number three, God is perfect. He is holy. He is love. He is just. He offered his only son for our sins. There is salvation in nothing else but the cross. For those who reject his son, there will be a judgment. There is an afterlife. There is heaven. There is hell. There are real places. Those, those who believe in him and embrace the sacrifice of the cross will be resurrected from the dead. They will live in the presence of God forever. Those who don't will be judged to eternal suffering. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Then please cry out to him and ask him to form his compassion in you. That it would motivate you to rescue others. To care about others. Because their heaven and hell are real. And what I say to Europeans is, Man, what I'm talking to you is not about religion. Some people say I'm not religious. I'm atheist or I'm scientific or I'm an evolutionist. I say, you know what? This might surprise you. I'm not religious either. What I'm, I'm spiritual though. And what I'm talking to you about is a relationship with the living God who promised that if you believe in him, he will give you eternal life. But he also promised he'd give you life abundant on this earth. Is that good news? You know, when I met my beautiful wife, I told everybody about her. I didn't bottle up one thing. Man, I was like an open book. I told everybody about Barb. Why don't we tell everybody about Jesus? Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. I'd like to um, close by telling you
about a, uh, a friend of mine. My friend's name is Paul. Uh, Paul, I met at a men's Bible study in Dallas a few months before we moved to Berlin in 2007. Uh, I didn't even know him that well, but I heard him speak a few times. He was Baptist. I'm charismatic, so we didn't you know, come from the same church or anything, but I met him at this men's Bible study. Paul was African-American. He would go down to Haiti. He'd go down to Dominican Republic, uh, other islands, uh, Jamaica, and he did evangelism ministry. And, uh, you know, I was on the verge of moving to Germany, and I, I, I just respected this guy. And, and I, I just felt led, even though I didn't know him that well, to ask that he would pray over me and, and pray that I'd have a deeper love for the lost, for the unsaved. And uh, at this time, unfortunately, in the short time I knew him, he found out that he had terminal cancer. So, you know, sometimes when you see the end in sight, you don't really worry so much about offending people. And maybe that's part of why he prayed this prayer. He, he prayed and he said, Jeff, before I pray that you'd have a deeper heart for the lost. And, and he's just praying over me. He said, Lord, give him a fresh revelation of your love. Of your love for Jeff. And I saw the wisdom in what he was praying. See, before we can really love the lost, we need to understand the love of Jesus for us. We need a fresh revelation of his love. We need a fresh revelation of his love. Then we need a impartation of his compassion. And we need a deliverance from fear. Fear of rejection, fear of offending people. Um, uh, I would rather offend people and plant a seed that might someday lead them to heaven and keep my mouth shut. And the other is not such a good picture. So, um, uh, there was a there was a book written a few years ago. Uh, I might have shared this when I was here last time, so forgive me if you've heard this before. But um, this this quote just really touches me. It was written by the John Grisham of England. He's a novelist. He's very famous. Everybody in England likes his books. But unlike John Grisham, who's a believer. This man, Julian Barnes, is an atheist, and he's very famous, and he writes all these novels. But he wrote a book a few years ago that was not a novel. It's about death. And it's interesting that an atheist would take on the subject of death. So I want you young ones to hear this too, because um, if you really catch what this man said, it's going to impact your life, all of us. So this older man in his 70s, he's writing about death in a book called Nothing to be Frightened of. And here's, here are a couple of statements from his book. He says, the brain is nothing more than a lump of meat, a mass of neurons. And the human soul is a collection of stories the brain tells itself. That's a humanistic, atheistic view of us, of our lives. But here's what else he said. And this statement stirred up controversy on the internet, on blogs, among atheists and Christians all over the world. He said, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. And there are people in your lives, 
in your sphere of influence. They might have a little bit of religion. They may not have any, any of that. But deep under the veneer of their lives, like you see with these goths, there's a cry that says, I miss him. Tell me about him. Um, I want to share one last verse, and then we're going to pray. And we're going to do something as a prophetic act, as a church, if God speaks to you. But I'm going to play a little game with you. It's called <clears throat> Finish the Verse. And I'm going to tell you where the verse is after this little illustration. So here's the beginning of the verse. This is in one of Paul's epistles. Paul says, who is our crown? Who is our joy? Who is our hope? Dot, dot, dot. How'd you finish it? Who's he speaking about? Jesus. I would say that too. That would fit. That would be truth to say that. But in this one verse, in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20, Jesus says, who is our hope? Who is our joy? Who is our crown? It's interesting he would say crown. He says, is it not you? Little you. You meaning the Thessalonians that he's writing to. Those he led to Jesus. Those he discipled. So let me ask you this. I've asked you several questions. And this is the last one in my sermon. Who are the yous in your life? Or maybe another question. Are there yous in your life? And if there are not, then I would challenge you to humble yourself before God and say, God, I repent. I am following you, but I am not a fisher of men. So, Lord, make me a fisher of men. Lord, help me have your compassion. Put your compassion in me for others that I might have use. Because I want you, when you get to heaven, to have a crown with many jewels. And those jewels rep represent the saints, the men and women you brought to heaven with you. Let's bow and pray. <clears throat> Lord, I thank you for the men and women, for the teens who are hearing my voice right now, for your sheep, for those who you bought with such a profound, extraordinary price of your blood. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would take these men and women who are your disciples and that you would just form your heart in them, that they would love who you love, that they would take the first step. Maybe the first step, Lord, for all of us is to say, God, here am I, send me. Here am I, God, take this lump of clay and change it. Help me become a compassionate Christian that sees souls like you see them, that can get out of my own skin and not be fearful. Lord, help us all today trade in selfishness for selflessness in busyness for what's important to you, the most important, Lord, the reason you've left us on this earth, why we are here, to be about what matters to you, to bring others with us to heaven. 
Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you might observe that we have a table here with salt. I like salt too much. Put it on too much food. French fries, steak, whatever. But you know, salt does no good to a piece of meat when it stays in here. Salt only finds its purpose when it comes out of the shaker. Too many of us, we've been salt held captive in a shaker. If the Holy Spirit has spoken to you during this message, I ask you to immediately jump to your feet. Don't hesitate and say, Jesus, I want to be a planet shaker. I want to be a fisher of men. I want to be a spiritual surgeon. I want to have use in my life. I want to take others to heaven. I want to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Come, and as a prophetic act, make it an act of prayer. And come and shake salt on this table as we worship. Please. And if you're not hearing the Holy Spirit say it, don't come. Thank you. Make it a prayer. Just speak to the Lord as you do this. Say, Lord Jesus, help me. Help me be salt in my world. This sister just uh, shared an acronym with me that salt means, you can remember, remember it this way, S-A-L-T, saving all lost together. That's good. Thank you. Sweet.